From the book of Isaiah, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 43 and continuing through verse 7. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The word of the Lord. From the book of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? From the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and continuing in verses 21 and 22. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased." The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you all this morning. For the next few weeks, we're going to take some time to look at um, what does it mean for Christ to be the light of the world? We talked last week about epiphany and this idea of Christ going out into all nations and how we are a people and a community who are always going outwards. That's God's desire and that's God's heart. And over the next few weeks, I want to talk about like what that looks like, like what might that mean, some reflections on what it might mean for Christ to be the light of the world and us to participate in his kingdom as salt and light in the world. But one of the critical things that I want to look at today is that we have to look at is anytime we are going out we are people who go out into all the world. Anytime we do that, it's critical that we understand our identity in Christ. What are we going out with and who are we going out as? That's critical. It's so important. 
So first of all, there is this general identity that all of us have as human beings. Um, It is a beautiful and valuable and wonderful thing to be a human being. I don't know if you have heard that in um, the churches that you were raised in. Sometimes, unfortunately, in Christianity, we talk about human being human as if it's something bad, something awful. Being a human being is a beautiful thing because we were created in the image of God. Every person you meet has been created in the image of God. They have that identity that they have been created in the image of God and they are loved by God. I don't believe that there are some people who are created in God's image and some who are not. I don't believe that. I don't believe that there are some who are loved and some who are not. I don't believe that there are some people who are vessels of beauty and some people who are vessels of wrath. I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe that there are some cultures that are loved and valued and accepted and some who are not. Human beings are loved by God and created in his image, and he pursues each and every one of us in relationship. I believe that. And yet, because of our broken states, human beings, we chase after so many other things other than our identity in Christ. We seek after so many other things to define who we are other than image-bearing creatures. We define ourselves by our successes and our failures, don't we? We define ourselves by money, by attractiveness, by influence. We define ourselves by all of these kinds of things. And then there's this beautiful thing that happens when a person, an image-bearing person, becomes part of God's family. When they give up the chase, when they say, yes, I am a child of God. They step into faith, they're baptized, In that moment, everything changes. They have a new identity. It's not that they're no longer tempted by the old things, by money and attractiveness and success and failure. They're still tempted by those things. Often we seek to define ourselves by those things, but we don't need those things. We are secure in something else. We have a deeper and a better identity than that. And we realize that. And we're part of a new people. We're part of a family that God is putting together and you are part of that family. Um, Often at sacrament, we invite you to reflect on your baptism, on that moment of your baptism. I don't wanna talk about that for a minute. Um, The church uh, throughout the world and throughout the centuries has found so many things to divide over and to break up over. (laughs) And baptism is one of those things, right? We have some of the more historic tradition that baptize what we call in believer's baptism, which is that when a person accepts Christ in faith that they're baptized, but also have practiced this idea of infant baptism, that um, parents kind of can make a decision for their children to invite them into the family of faith. And there's so much that I can't um, unpack with all of this today. But that's kind of one uh, major chunk of Christian tradition, Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church. Most of kind of historic Christianity has practiced that. And then there are also some who do believers baptism only. So that's to say that we will dedicate babies, right, when they're dedicated, but then when they're able to consciously kind of have an affirmation and a verbal affirmation themselves, then they'll be baptized. Um, I grew up in a tradition, and and many of you may grow up in all different kinds of backgrounds. Um, I grew up in a tradition that was believer's baptism only, okay? So we did a baby dedications, and then when somebody was old enough, they made that decision. Um, In my adult life, I've kind of come to this place, and maybe as you get a little bit older in life, maybe you kind of begin to loosen up on some things. Um, But I've kind of come to this place to see beauty in both traditions, 
Um, as I've been ordained in the Anglican tradition, I have seen such beauty and strength in infant baptism, that when somebody is affirmed by the community of faith, they step in as an infant, and then in the future, they make that declaration of faith that just seals that and affirms that moment. I've seen the beauty in that. And then I've seen such beauty in those who say, no, as a child gets to be a certain age, a lot of times in believers' baptism only churches, it's like seven or eight or 12 that a lot of the kids in the church come up and they get baptized. And it's such a beautiful and powerful thing. Um, At sacrament, we have traditionally practiced believers' baptism. So when Brent Grimes was baptized several months ago, that was a believers' baptism. He kind of made a confession of faith. But we're kind of at this place now where we are open to both of those traditions. Um, We may have some families that come and their infant is baptized, and we celebrate that moment. And we recognize that day when that infant will grow up and be able to make a public declaration of their faith. And then we have some who want to do a dedication. And when we do a baby dedication, we do it like seriously, like formally. It's not just a casual kind of thing. It's actually just like a infant baptism, except no water. (laughs) And then eventually they may step into, and we um, see them stepping into baptism as they get older. So we kind of affirm both of those. And it's personally, for me, it's been an interesting journey as I've become more open to the idea of infant baptism um, in my adult life. uh, I have a five-year-old. And I remember Ashley and I talking about it and me going, I really want her to be baptized. I want us to, to do this. And just, she was dedicated as, a, as an infant, but really want her to be baptized. And yet Lucy, those of you that know her, know that she has a little bit of a will to her, right? And uh, she's kind of past the age where we could do something without her having a say in it, right? <laughs> she is gonna have a say in it. So one of these days, I hope it will be soon, but whenever she feels like that's right, then, then she will be baptized. But I wanted you guys to know a little bit about that. And if you have questions on that, if, you, if you're here today and you go, no, I feel really strongly in this one or this one, I'm not, we're not gonna baptize you in a way you don't wanna be baptized, okay? So that's okay. But if you have questions about that and what that looks like, um, I wanna talk to you about it. But, but I do wanna talk to, if there are those of you here today and you've never been baptized, as we talk about baptism, I don't wanna exclude you today. I don't want you to feel excluded today. This may be a forward-thinking thing to you. So as we reflect on our baptism today, as we remember back on each of our baptism, if you have not been baptized, I want you, instead of reflecting back, reflect forward. Might God be leading me into this step of giving my life to him, of stepping in uh, to the church and to the faith? Um, By the way, we would be honored to baptize you. Uh, It would be our honor. Many of us are here and we don't remember our baptism. No matter what kind of tradition you were in, you, maybe you were too young to remember. Maybe you feel like your parents didn't take it very seriously. It was just kind of a ritual for you. Some of us, um, so we have the people that maybe we don't remember our baptism, but then secondly, some of us remember it, but we were baptized in a church and a tradition that we don't think very highly of today. That we look back and we go, I don't really like that church. Or, you know, my pastor ended up being a creep. Or that's a tradition that I left altogether, right? That might be you today. So baptism may feel weird to you. Some of you may remember your baptism fondly. And if you do, I wanna encourage you to kind of enter that space today. Remember that moment. Remember what that was like. Reflect on what happened in that moment. Even if you've never thought of it much, who you are changed that day. Your identity changed. Something shifted in that moment. For those of you who don't remember it, I wanna invite you to imagine a little bit, to think back on what you did know about it. 
What do you remember? Maybe you just remember loving parents who brought you forward. Maybe you remember the church that you were baptized in. I want you to remember those things today. For those of you that the experience was not a fond one, I wanna encourage you to ask God to redeem that memory for you today. If you didn't know what you were doing or you felt like the people had bad motives, I want you to know today that you were still baptized. You were baptized. There was a change that happened in you. God uses broken people and broken situations to carry forth his kingdom. Otherwise, he couldn't use people, okay? Because we're all broken. But God did something in you in baptism. Today, I wanna talk about that new identity that we have in Christ. I wanna talk about what it means to be the beloved children of God. What does that mean? The prophet Isaiah in that first passage, as Ellen is reading it, I just wanna shout amen all the way through it. It's so beautiful. As Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel and he says in that Old Testament reading, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I love this word redeemed. It's one of those big church words that sometimes we skip over because it's not something we use in our normal vocabulary, but redeemed is this idea of exchange. So when you redeem a coupon, you are giving something to gain something else which is actually kind of strange, right? Like, like if you take a piece of paper or you take a barcode, that has nothing to do with the discount <laughs> that you are about to receive, right? They're not the same thing, but you're redeeming it. You're trading one thing for another. It's been exchanged, it's been redeemed. When we turn our lives over to Christ, we hand him our broken selves. We hand him the places where we haven't measure, measured up the places where we miss the mark. We hand him our shameful places and and he gives us a new life and a new identity altogether. We are part of a new people. This is one of the most significant things that's signified in baptism. Isaiah's passage is a foreshadowing of the Jesus who will plunge himself into the waters of sin and death and then come out on the other side. Who, like it says in the passage, went through the water but was not consumed who went through the flames and the fire, but was not burned up. In baptism, we are plunged into the waters and we come out on the other side as part of God's new creation. We have a new life. And this is no matter your previous identity. So that was the Isaiah text. In our Acts text, we have this really interesting story, okay? The Holy Spirit's been poured out on the church, okay? So we see the church has been born, this, uh, this been borned, that's not a word, has been born. The church has been formed. I'm trying to say both of those together. And up until this chapter, it was an exclusively Jewish church, okay? So ethnically Jewish church. And in Pentecost in Acts chapter two, we see this was a Jewish experience that happened. All of the people there spoke all different languages. They came from all over the place, but all of them in that place in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit is poured out are Jewish. So the church is Jewish at that point exclusively. Um, And then in Acts chapter eight, we start to have this interesting thing happen. The church leaders in Jerusalem hear of something. 
They hear that there are some people in Samaria, which is like the next region over, who have accepted the word of God. So they hear this news. Oh my gosh, there's some people over there and they're not really Jewish, but they've accepted the word of God. The Jews and the Samaritans at this time hated each other. There was so much cultural tension between the two. And the Samaritans' identity in the Jewish mind was that they were half-breeds. They were kind of Jewish. They were kind of insiders, but really, not really. Why? Well, a little historical background. Way back 900 years before this, 930 BC, King Solomon, Israel's king, died, and his son, Rehoboam, became the king of Israel. But 10 of the 12 tribes didn't accept Rehoboam's authority. They basically said, he is not my president, right? Like, this is not my king. We're not doing this, right? 10 of the 12 tribes. So when this happened, Israel split into two groups, all right? Um, 10 of the 12 tribes broke away to form what we call the Northern Kingdom. The remaining two remained part of the Southern Kingdom, which became one tribe, the tribe of Judah. So you get these 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them split away. They go to the North, they're the Northern Kingdom. The other two stay back and they become Judah. So then you have Israel and you have Judah. You have these two different kingdoms. Well, in 730 BC, 200 years later, the Assyrian empire, so outsiders, conquered the Northern Kingdom, okay, those 10 tribes who separated. And they, when they conquered them, what they did is they exported many of the children of Israel to Assyria. So they conquered, they came in, they said, we're the boss now and a bunch of you, you're gonna leave. We're gonna send you back to our homeland. Why do they do this? Well, the reason why a lot of people have done this over the centuries is because they don't want that group to build too strong of a national identity and rise up and revolt against them. So they'd kind of like intermingle groups. The other thing they did is not only did they take a bunch of people out of Israel and send them to Assyria, they took a bunch of people from other conquered groups and brought them into Israel. So they began to mix, kind of it became a diverse uh, community at that point. So the Assyrians, they wanted to remove any kind of national identity from the children of Israel. So they did this, they did this intermingling. And as people do when they are intermingled with each other and they spend time together, they begin to intermarry, okay? So they begin to marry with people of different groups. Many centuries later, at that time, Jesus walks in. So we've got 700 years after this. And this region had been called Samaria, and they were seen as half-breeds, people who, had, um, people who had had children with people of other religions, people of other ethnicities. They had been seen as the intermarried people, the mixed up people. They had a mix of religions and gods at this time. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that this was declared a no-no for the children of Israel to do that. So the Samaritans were considered by the Jewish people in the time of Jesus to be enemies of God. Their ancestors had disobeyed, and so they were all mixed up because of this. But in Jesus, something new had happened. If you remember, Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Something different has happened in Jesus. No longer is this about us and our kind of ethnicity and our group. This is now about even those who our ancestors considered enemies. Even those who you hate, the call of God goes out to. So Peter and John, who are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they go check it out. 
They go, okay, there's some people who are accepting this word of God. And so we're going to go check it out. We're going to go see what's going on here. And this group, when they arrive, they find out that they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But it says that they had not received the Holy Spirit. What is this about? Okay. Now, I know this gets confusing. There's a lot of theological debate. What does it mean for somebody to be baptized in the name of Jesus, but not receive the Holy Spirit? Like, what are we talking about here? Well, one thing that we recognize here is in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit moved in waves, okay? And the Spirit always worked through the ministry of the church, okay? So, sure, God could have said in Acts chapter 2, boom, the Holy Spirit is now everywhere. Go for it. All nations, all over. But God chose to do something interesting. He chose to keep the church working together, to keep a unity for the Holy Spirit to work out through the church's missionary activity. So what we see here is we have these people who believe in Jesus, they've made a confession of faith, they've been baptized, and yet there's this sense of something else needs to happen. And for that other thing to happen, they need the elders of the church. They need the leaders of the church. They need the church to come out and say, yes, you are part of God's family. And somehow the Holy Spirit works in that way. We need the church to affirm the Holy Spirit is at work here. Now, it's always important for us to remember that Acts is what we call descriptive rather than prescriptive. In other words, we're not reading this and going, this is always how God works. God works this way every single time. I grew up in a tradition that we love the book of Acts, okay? Um, more charismatic kind of tradition. We love the book of Acts, but we are constantly trying to make formulas out of the book of Acts, <laughs> okay? So it was constantly, okay, this is how you speak in tongues. You do this and this and this. This is how miracles happen. You do this and this and this. This happens first, then this happens first. We even had charts and stuff that we laid out. If you gotta do this thing and then this thing and then this thing and then this thing, but that's not how the book of Acts works. And you can drive yourself crazy doing that with Acts because Acts has all different orders all over the place. <laughs> Some people accept Jesus, they get baptized, and then we don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Some people, the Holy Spirit starts working and they've not even made a confession of faith yet. Like there's all these kind of weird things happen. So what do we take from that? We see the Holy Spirit works how the Holy Spirit wants to work, right? <laughs> and so this is descriptive. This is how the Spirit worked, worked. And we can see some things about God's character in this right? But we trust God's presence and God's work today. It's important for us to know that now the Holy Spirit has fully come to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and to Gentiles, okay? Therefore, we believe when you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you, okay? There's no need for a two-tiered thing, now, some of you are going, I've never even heard of that. I grew up in a tradition where you had to accept Christ and you got baptized, and then you had like another thing you had to do, like a, another baptism that happened. Um, so the Holy Spirit does continue to fill us up. So many of us have third and fourth and second, second, third, fourth experiences with the Holy Spirit. And that's where you might hear some Christians say that they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a description of this kind of other experience that happens in us and is beautiful right? But we have to trust when you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. The important thing I want us to see here is that the Holy Spirit is going to the outsiders, the hated people, and the marginalized. See that? The, whole, the, 
the outsiders, the hated, and the marginalized. And he extends his work through the leaders of the church. Okay, so the leaders of the church go out. Some of us feel um, left out of the Spirit's activity because of our past. Some of us feel deep in our heart that we were born as part of the wrong tribe or we have chased this one thing for so long and it's defined who we are. And so there's a sense of shame. The Holy Spirit could never fully use me because of this. Our reminder in this passage, I believe, is that you are invited into God's family. And this is so important for us to remember, not only for ourselves, that I hope each and every one of us remember that that shame that we felt is a lie, that Christ invites us to participate in his kingdom regardless of our past, but it's also critical for us to remember as we approach those who define themselves differently in the world today, that we have to remind every group, every person is invited to be fully part of God's family by the Spirit, okay? If you look at the book of Acts, the, well, one of the things about Christianity, Christianity is really the only of all the major religions that doesn't have one central place. Have you ever noticed that? Like every major religion has one sacred place that is like the center of everything. It's the epicenter of everything for that religion. Christianity doesn't have that. Why? Because we're a religion that's constantly going out, constantly on the move. And so that epicenter changes constantly. So in the book of Acts, we see that Jerusalem started as the center of Christianity. But quickly, all the activity moved to Antioch really fast. Then later, we saw it kind of split. So you had the Western church move to Rome, the Eastern church move to Constantinople. And then we've seen globally over the centuries, the call has continued to go out and just scatter everywhere, which I know to us just sounds like, duh, like that's what we do. But, but compared to the rest of the religions of the world, that's so unique that the faith just goes out everywhere without this epicenter. One way to illustrate this is in 1901, the typical Christian, if you looked at the average kind of Christian, what they were and where they came from, the typical Christian was a 40-year-old British man, 1901, okay? So your average Christian was a, a 40-year-old British man. Well, by the turn of the 2000s, the typical Christian was a 24-year-old Nigerian woman. Believe that. The world has changed. The faith has changed. It's constantly going out. So it asks us to beg the question, like, who are the people that sometimes we have left out, that we've thought of as outsiders, as different? What if we thought of every person that we encountered, especially those on the marginalized, as like future followers of Jesus? <laughs> we thought of them differently. In what ways are we sharing the gospel with those on the margins? And then our gospel text today is about the baptism of Jesus. This is an incredible scene here that Jesus is baptized. There's people standing around John and they're wondering if he's the Messiah. It says they have great expectation. They're hoping that he's the Messiah. But John deflects from himself. John always does this, that he says there's someone coming who's gonna be greater than me. And then Jesus seeks to be baptized. So he comes to John and seeks to be baptized. And when Jesus asks to be baptized, you can tell that John knows that there's something weird about this. Why would Jesus be baptized? He hasn't had any sin to repent of. 
So you can tell John feels like this moment is really insufficient. He's kind of like, yeah, I, I don't even think I should be doing this. Like, this is a really strange situation. Something is not enough. Bap- Jesus, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus submits to it. Jesus invites John, even in John's incompleteness and his weakness. God invites John to participate in this divine event. So this scene is incredible. It's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and John's arms. (laughs) They seem out of place, right? This miracle of the Trinity interacting with each other. And then John gets to (laughs) baptize Jesus. What a picture of God inviting human beings to participate in the divine life. I feel that way so often in faith. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in my life and in the world, and then my hands, maybe, (laughs) right? Our participation, our life, and yet that's our faith. That's what we're called to. I think about this church that way. You are a bunch of exceptional people. Okay, I have to say that. I'm in awe of you every day. And yet we're also a bunch of normal people, aren't we? We all have our weaknesses. We have our weaknesses as a church. We meet in a rented space here in a plain shopping center right next to a hot dog shop. I often tell people when describing where to go to get to our church, I say, now you know that beautiful Episcopal church? It's right there on the corner, this beautiful building in the Gothic style. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I go, that's not the church. Keep going, find the hot dog stand (laughs) and you'll see our, our building out front. But we meet here week after week in humble fashion often. Sometimes like last week, the batteries die on the microphone. The speaker breaks, it's barely hanging on there. Sometimes the coffee's better than other times. That wasn't a shot at today. I had that written beforehand. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sometimes the projector goes out, like stuff happens. And yet somehow we believe in this normal everyday life with our hands and our feet and our worship and our off-key singing sometimes, not the worship team, I'm talking about me. (laughs) We believe God meets us here. We've always a sense that somehow that's not enough. Somehow this isn't fully sacred space, but God says that it is. That he invites us to participate in worship and in mission as his people. So why was Jesus baptized anyway? Well, he didn't didn't need to be forgiven of sin. It was without sin. So what's going on here? Well, I think there's three things quickly. The first thing is we have this scene of new creation happening. Um, The something's happening in Luke's gospel here where he wants us to get this idea of new creation. So in Genesis, in the very beginning of our story, you have the the spirit of God hovering over the waters that God creates by speaking. And then we have the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And the image is kind of like a bird, okay? Hovering over the waters, creating out of of the waters and out of the, the murky deep. So we have that here in Genesis. And Luke is showing us that something like that is happening again in Jesus that there is a new creation that's happening. He wants us to point back to that scene in Genesis and something is happening in Jesus where creation is renewing. It's happening again. Light is shining in darkness. So we see a light, it says. And then the father is speaking. And then right near the, here, right here near the beginning of Luke's gospel, 
He is telling us everything has changed in the world because of Jesus. New creation has come. And that's what happens when we participate in baptism and we step into the Christian faith. Everything changes for us. Um, There's that passage in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. I always heard the old, um, I think it was King James, um, he is a new creation or they are a new creation, which is fine. It's a fine interpretation, but, but sometimes we think of that as individualistic, that I myself am a new, a new creation, whereas it really has, if, if you look at the Greek, the sentence is more like, if anyone is in Messiah, new creation. So the idea is you're jumping into new creation. <laughs> you're jumping into this world that's new and different because of Jesus. Our past and our previous identities are transformed and redeemed and we have a new identity. Okay, so the first maybe reason we could say that Jesus was baptized is new creation, this idea of this image of new creation. The second one is Jesus is baptized in solidarity with us. Solidarity with us. He's not baptized to repent for sin, but he steps into our place. He stands in solidarity with us in our sin. He goes through every part of the human experience, including baptism. This means if Jesus stands in solidarity with the human condition, if he stands with us, this means there's nothing you've gone through that Jesus does not understand. There is nothing that you've experienced. There's nothing that you're going through now that Jesus can't stand with you in the midst of that thing. Jesus was not only tired. I love the passages in scripture where it says, so Jesus was tired and he sat down. I'm like, nice, good, because <laughs> I'm tired too. Not only was Jesus weak at times and hungry, but he was also beaten and mocked and abused and killed. Today, that place where you stand that is so hard and is so challenging Because of Jesus, we can say that space, even that space is sacred space. God is there with you. He is baptized in solidarity with our humanity. So Jesus is plunged into the chaotic waters of creation, which brings about new creation on the other side. And this is what happens when we're baptized. We we are called to stand in solidarity with the world. So we plunge ourselves as we go out into the world. We are plunging ourselves into the chaotic waters of creation. We are standing with those who are hurting and marginalized and oppressed. And we are saying new creation is on the other side. We are diving in and we see new creation come about. So we see new creation was one reason for his baptism, solidarity. And then the third is identity. Um, Notice that This happens before Jesus has really done anything. He's not performed any miracles. He hasn't given an amazing teaching, okay? Hasn't done anything yet. This is an affirmation of who Christ is that happens before Jesus could have even possibly earned anything. When we participate in baptism, it's not a mark that we've achieved something. It's a mark that because of Christ, we are part of God's family. It's not God's design that children earn their way into families. Now, maybe you grew up in a family where you felt like you had to earn your parents' approval or something like that. And I do think that that is sad, but that's not God's design. Um, A family is supposed to be a place of unconditional love. 
This is not to say that Jesus was insecure about his identity. I've heard that preached before, but Jesus, I don't think Jesus was insecure about the fact, the mission that he was about to undergo. This wasn't for Jesus. It was for everyone else to see who Jesus is. And because of who Jesus is, because of the great love which stepped into our world, our identity as God's beloved is secure. On my birthday, um, I just turned 35 and I don't know, I started feeling weird about that. <laughs> it was like a milestone. I'm starting to feel a little, um, what have I accomplished? What have I done? You know, just some questions. I think that's probably normal stuff. But um, I received this wonderful birthday card from my parents. I'm not normally a card guy, right? Like I, I usually open up a card real quick. Oh, that's sweet. And then it usually goes in the trash pretty quickly, right? I don't know if that's true with you. I'm not usually a card guy. I buy them because they're meaningful to a lot of people. I understand they're a tradition, but most cards that you buy at the drugstore or whatever are incredibly cheesy. I try to buy cards that are like blank. They maybe have something pretty on the outside and then I'll just write what I want. <laughs> but my parents got this card for me that was so meaningful. And as I turned 35, I had started wrestling with these, uh, my accomplishments and some questions. And I have the kind of personality that I wanna achieve. I want to point to the metaphorical mountains that I've scaled and be able to say, these are the things I've done, this, 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 and this. But much of what God has led us to do, um, the results are intangible. They're not things that you always can fully see that when you talk about participating in people's lives as they're changed and spiritual formation and solidarity and empathy, these are things that are hard to measure and that's really tough for me. <laughs> I like to see things. Um, but I was feeling a bit discouraged on that day and my parents wrote me a card that was so affirming and so blessing. And it specifically affirmed the areas of my life that I've been doubting about myself. I don't know if you've had that experience before. Now I feel weird saying this because I'm a grown man I shouldn't need to be too dependent on my parents' words of affirmation, right? Um, but I don't know that you ever outgrow the desire for that from your parents. Um, and I get that I'm, I'm lucky and that a lot of people are not lucky to have parents that are affirming. But I want us to know today that we have a heavenly parent who affirms us just as we are. And I want you to think about those places that you feel weak today and you feel not enough, and you feel you haven't measured up. And I hope that you hear from your heavenly father today that you are the beloved son or daughter because of Jesus, right? That your identity has changed. My heart today is for you to know that you are the beloved of God. God knows you, he knows every part of you, and he delights in you. It's not that he tolerates you, right? It, it's not that, oh yeah, that's one of my kids, they're fine what's their name again? <laughs> no, he delights in you. You make him smile. And, and I know sometimes we hear that and we go, how is that possible? I don't believe that. We may even get resistant. We may close ourselves off. Well, I'll just say it again. He delights in you. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean he delights in everything we do. Um, a parent who just loves their children and loves everything their children does is not a loving parent, okay? Uh, I delight in Lucy. And yet when she doesn't hold my hand in the parking lot of Trader Joe's, I am not happy. The reason I'm not happy is I don't want her to get crushed by an SUV that's backing out, right? It's, it's this care and this love and this concern. I delight in Lucy. And yet when she begs for toys after I told her no, I'm not happy in that. 
Why? Because I don't want her to grow up to be a third world dictator, right? <laughs> God does not always delight in what we do, okay? And the reason for that is because he loves us so much and who we are delights him so much, right? God delights in you today. He knows your weaknesses. He knows the places where you feel you're not good enough. He's created you with areas of strength and areas of great dependence. And even in our strengths, we must learn dependence. So even those places you think you're great, you've got to learn dependence. In those moments where you feel I'll never be enough, when we compare ourselves to others, when we feel out of control, when we feel shame over a certain part of our personality, God knows that and he delights in you even there those weak places. And those moments where you feel like you're hot stuff, you've figured everything out, you've got the right perfect political ideology, you're the best in your company, you know all the right answers and you need to tell everybody on social media about them, right? He lovingly wants to remind you that he is your creator and he holds your true identity as the beloved son or daughter of God. May God's loving invitation lead us to loving invitation of others. May God's affirmation lead us to remind the world of who they were created to be. Amen. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your great love. Thank you for creating us in your image. Lord, thank you that even as we've gone astray, that you don't give up on us. Thank you for stepping into our world, for loving us just as we are. Thank you for bringing us into a family, a family of faith, not just an individual experience, spiritual experience, but a family of faith. Thank you for your unconditional love. Lord, we trust in that today. I pray that you'd remind us this morning of our true identity in you and that we'd be formed in that direction and in that way. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.